Good morning, family. Bring you greetings from uh, our sister Pillar Network Church, Nanceman River Baptist Church. Uh, it was a joy to uh, preach there last Sunday, um, but it's always better to be with you. So I'm grateful to be with you this morning. Uh, many of you know that our ladies were away on a women's retreat over the past a few days. And that meant that dad got to spend some extra time with my five children. And um, I was reminded in that time away that siblings will fight about just about anything. <laughs> and that is true. Um, so, for example, if you want to watch a TV show with your children... They might fight on what show to watch. If they happen to agree on what show to watch, they might fight over which episode to watch. They'll fight about who's sitting by dad while we watch the show. Who gets to hold the remote? When we should push play? Whether or not we skip the credits? Uh, how loud the volume should be, whether or not we have subtitles, and much, much more. Now, I, I can't complain too much because growing up uh, as one of 11 siblings, we fought a plenty when I was a kid. I remember sitting next to one of my brothers as he stabbed another brother in the face with a ballpoint pen over a seatbelt. That is true. Probably the worst fights that kids get into, kids, you know you're guilty, are the fights over a hypothetical. So it maybe will work something like this. You say to your kids, all right, kids, finish your homework, and then we'll go out for ice cream. If you finish it, we'll go get ice cream. And immediately the trouble starts. Now, parents, it's really your fault because you weren't specific enough. You didn't tell them where we were going to get ice cream, so they're fighting about that. You didn't tell them how many scoops they could get, so they're fighting about that. You didn't tell them who was going to get in line first at the ice cream shop, so they fight about that. You didn't explain to them that it's quite possible for two siblings to both get the same kind of ice cream and both still be happy, so they fight about that. And all the while, all this fighting is going on, there's one thing that's not getting done, and that's anybody's homework. <laughs> They've spent all their time fighting about a destination that they may not even reach. Well, it turns out that kids aren't the only one that argue about things like that. If you're not already there, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. We are somewhere in the second half of Jesus' earthly ministry. And in the last chapter of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 17, here's some of the, the highlights that we saw. We saw Jesus appearing to three of his disciples in a stunning, dazzling display of heavenly glory. We saw Jesus cast out a demon and heal a boy that the disciples were unable to help. We heard Jesus as he predicted again his death and resurrection, and we watched Jesus perform a miracle where Peter got a coin out of a fish. 
Now, everything in chapter 17 screams one message. Jesus is the greatest. And yet, chapter 18 begins with the disciples fighting about which one of them will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Rather than arguing with his disciples in our text about who's going to be the greatest in heaven, Jesus wants his disciples to understand what it takes to actually get there. There is, after all, no sense in fighting about a destination that we may not even reach. So Jesus, when the disciples come to him with their question, turns it on its head, and instead of focusing on who will be the greatest in heaven, Jesus teaches his disciples about the only type of people that go there. Jesus, in our passage this morning, teaches his disciples and all of us that heaven is only for the humble and the holy. That's the big idea that our passage teaches this morning, and I hope to convince you of from the words of Jesus. Heaven is only for the humble and the holy. Our outline this morning breaks down into two life-changing truths. Number one, only the humble can enter the kingdom of heaven. And number two, only the holy have entered the kingdom of heaven. If you're in this room and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you call yourself a Christian, please listen carefully and examine your life based on Jesus' words in this passage. Are the characteristics of a kingdom-bound, a heaven-bound person, are they true of you, dear friend? And if not, what does that mean for your eternal destination? I plead with you, brother, sister, friend, don't make the same mistake that the disciples made. Don't waste your time thinking about what life will be like when you get to heaven. Make sure you're actually on your way. Let's begin in verses 1 to 4, which teach us, number 1, that only the humble can enter the kingdom. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, perhaps your first instinct upon reading verse 1 is to defend the disciples. Pastor, you said that they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. It doesn't say they're arguing here. It just says they asked Jesus a question. Is that really so bad? Well, in Mark and Luke, in both, the, both accounts of this story, the authors make it clear that the disciples are arguing here. And we know that this was a topic that they argued about quite a lot because in Matthew chapter 20, they're arguing about it again. So it's no surprise that the disciples are arguing here about which one of them will be greatest in heaven. Here's the surprise in our text. The surprise is how Jesus responds to their argument. Look with me beginning in verse 2. And calling to him a child... He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn 
and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, in characteristic form, rather than immediately answering the disciples' question about who's going to be the greatest in heaven, he invites them to examine themselves to see if they're actually going there. One commentator put it like this, the disciples were asking about the all-star team. Jesus said, let's talk about making the team. Notice the emphatic language in our text. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does Jesus mean when he says that if you want to go to heaven, you need to turn and become like children? Uh, certainly Jesus is not saying that we need to become like children in every respect. Children are often very immature. Children often fight about all sorts of stuff. Children often make foolish, foolish decisions out of ignorance. So in what sense does Jesus want us to become like children? What does he mean? There's a couple of different options that commentators have suggested. Some say that, that uh, what we need to do is have childlike faith, like kids, because kids just believe things without any questions asked. That's one theory. Another theory, uh, probably my favorite one, not because it's true, but because it's funny, is a commentator who said that what Jesus is talking about is how obedient children are. Now <laughs> uh, listen to this quote. This is a real quote from a real Bible commentary. Jesus' point is that one should accept the kingdom and be obedient to its summons in the same way children will, get this, without question, obey adults and do what they are told. <laughs> I think that commentator should probably spend a little bit more time in the nursery and a little bit less time writing books. <laughs> what does he mean? What does Jesus mean? In what sense are we supposed to become like children? I think verse 4 helps us understand the answer. Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So how do we become like children? In their humility. Okay, so in what sense are children humble? Is Jesus saying that every child is just intrinsically humble? I, I don't think so. Uh, Holly and I could, if we wanted to, show you a video of one of our children who shall remain nameless, who saying over and over and over again, I'm the best, I'm the best, at around age two. I don't think kids are intrinsically humble in every sense, but there is a sense in which children are naturally humble. Here's what it is. Generally speaking, children, especially younger children, they know they need help. They know they need help. Adults, let's be real, we don't like admitting we need help. You can do it by yourself. But children, as a general rule, know that they need help. So the infant daughter who's hungry doesn't try to behave before she cries out for milk, does she? She just screams until you give it to her. 
or the toddler doesn't clean himself up and make himself presentable at 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning before he asks for breakfast. He just wakes you up and says, I want Fruit Loops. Sometimes in our house, we, we get on to our children for a sense of entitlement that simply expects mom or dad to meet their every need. And there's, there's something wrong with that, but there's also something good there. There's a kernel of goodness there and that these children believe that mom and dad can meet my needs and they want to. When Jesus says, humble yourself as a child, I think here's what he's saying. We need to have the mentality that stops thinking that we can earn God's love. We need to stop thinking that we can impress him somehow. We need to humble ourselves and cry out to Jesus and say, I need your help. One pastor put it this way, children only come they bringing nothing but empty hands and only empty hands get filled. Let me ask you, dear brother, sister, friend, have you come to Jesus with empty hands? Or have you come to him with your hands filled with your good works, your church attendance, your baptism, your giving, your giftedness, have you come to Jesus with empty hands? Have you come to Jesus like a child, turning from your self-dependence and putting all your faith in Jesus' ability to meet your every need? Dear brother, sister, friend, if you truly understand the gospel, you'll recognize why only the humble can enter the kingdom of heaven. That word gospel literally means good news. It's the good news of what God has done through Jesus to save his people. Before we get to the good news part, there's a lot of bad news. And the bad news chiefly is this. God is infinitely, perfectly holy, and we are totally, utterly sinful. And there's a great gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. And as a result, what we deserve is eternal separation from God in a place called hell. We've rebelled against God. And as a result, we deserve his punishment. But here's where the good news comes. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came to this earth, lived a sinless life, the life that we should have lived, died a sinner's death, the death that we should have died, and rose from the dead so that whoever believes in him can have eternal life. Listen to me, brother, sister, friend. You will not, you cannot believe that unless you humble yourself. Here's why it takes humility. You have to believe that you're not in charge. You don't get to define yourself however you want. The culture says you can be whoever you want to be. The, the, the person that comes to God in faith says, I am who God made me to be. You must humble yourself and admit that there's a creator who's in charge and it's not you. 
you have to humble yourself and admit that your sin is far worse than you think. You're not a pretty good person. Apart from Jesus, your best works are like filthy rags. You have to humble yourself and believe that your sin was so bad that the only way for any of us to be saved was for the eternal Son of God to humble himself and die on a cross in your place. And you have to believe that the only way for you to be right with God is not to earn anything, but simply with empty hands come to Jesus and say, please save me. Do you see why only the humble can enter the kingdom? You'll never believe that as long as you insist on your pride. So unbeliever, if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, are you willing to humble yourself like a child and admit today that your need is really this great? Dear friend, you can do that today right where you sit. You can cry out to the Lord in your heart and tell him you're a sinner and there's nothing you can do to earn his love. All your, your only hope is the trust in what Jesus has done. You can do that today. And I promise you this, if you come to Jesus truly and humbly, broken for your sin, he will never cast you out. Will you humble yourself and do that today? If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to learn more, you, you want to understand this better, would you talk to me or one of our pastors about that before you leave here today? We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to humble yourself to follow Jesus. Let me say a word to the Christians in this room. Are you humble like a child? Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you're thinking, well, what would it look like for me to be proud like the disciples are in this passage? I can't imagine anybody in this room going up to Jesus arguing about who's going to be the greatest in heaven. That seems so foreign to us. What would it look like for you to be proud today? In Mark's account of this event, this conversation, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So Christian, let me suggest a humility test for you this morning. How willing are you to be last? How do you respond when you're looked over and forgotten? Do you demand to be recognized? to be catered to, to be appreciated? Do you demand that your opinions are heard or your feelings are recognized? Or are you content being last place? How willing are you to be a servant, Christian? How often do you lay aside your needs in order to meet the needs of others? Are you quick to complain about how you need to be served? Or are you quick to step in and serve somebody else? Dear Christian, if you're like me and you struggle with any of those questions, then you're probably a little more proud than you think you are. Christian, pride will not steal your salvation, but it will steal your joy. It'll steal your joy. A proud Christian is a walking contradiction. He's forgotten who he really is. If that's you this morning, Christian, I just plead with you, would you please just repent? Tell the Lord, I'm sorry. Pride, pride again. Sorry, Lord. 
will you forgive me? And then believe that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look again at the truth of the gospel this morning, Christian, and be reminded that all you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. Confess your pride to the Lord and live in humility again because heaven is only for the humble and the holy. First, Jesus tells his disciples why only the humble can enter the kingdom of heaven. Second, Jesus tells them, number two, that only the holy have entered the kingdom of heaven. Second half of this text is verses five to nine. And in verses five to nine, Jesus shifts from talking about how we enter the family of God to how we live within the family of God. We'll read these verses in a second, but if I could summarize them in one sentence, it would be something like this. Kingdom citizens are committed to holiness. That's what verses five to nine are about. Christians are committed to holiness. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will actually try to follow Jesus. If you call yourself a Christian, you will care about holiness. I think it's important for us to point out that not everybody who says, I'm a Christian, is a Christian. Jesus famously says in Matthew chapter 7, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have I not performed miracles and cast out demons and done this and done that? And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. It's possible to call yourself a Christian, to think yourself a Christian, and not really be a Christian. One of the key indicators of a genuine Christian is a commitment to holiness. When you became a Christian, followers of Jesus in this room, when you became a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, you were justified. That means you were declared righteous through the work of Jesus. Jesus paid your sin debt. Jesus was holy. And when you trusted in him, you were declared righteous. The Christian life then is just living like who God says you are. Growing in your appetite for and your desire for holiness. All of a sudden, you care about obeying Jesus in a way that you used to not care. Is that true of your life, Christian? Now, before we explain this from our passage, I want to be really careful because I want the Christians in this room to understand that we're not talking about perfect holiness, but pursuing holiness. Jesus doesn't teach that you have to be perfectly holy to be a Christian, but that if you're a Christian, you will be pursuing holiness. One passage that teaches this is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, where it says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Uh, that verse makes two things clear. If you are not holy, you will not see the Lord. There's a holiness that if you don't have, you won't see Jesus. Only the holy have entered the kingdom. 
But this is a holiness we must strive for. It's not automatic. It's not holiness perfected, but holiness pursued. You really don't even have to leave Matthew 18 to see that that's the type of holiness Jesus is talking about. In verses 10 to 14, Jesus talks about how God pursues Christians even when we sin. In verses 15 to 20, Jesus talks about how God disciplines Christians when we sin. In verses 21 to 35, Jesus talks about how Christians must forgive each other when we sin. You know what there's a lot of in Matthew chapter 18? There's a lot of sinning Christians in Matthew chapter 18. Why? Because becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you no longer struggle with sin. If anything, it means the battle begins, doesn't it? That's when it starts to get hot. That's when it, the fighting starts to become intense. So again, Christian, this is not about perfect holiness, but pursuing holiness. Let, let's ask ourselves two questions from verses 5 to 9 to examine if we are pursuing holiness. Here's question number one. Am I selflessly committed to others' holiness? Am I selflessly committed to the holiness of other Christians? Look at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Well, what's Jesus talking about in these verses? Well, it's certainly true that Christians should care about little children and not entice them to sin, but that's not what Jesus is talking about in these verses. When Jesus talks about receiving a child in his name he, or, or causing a little child to, a little one to sin, he's no longer talking about physical children, but he's using a, a physical child as a spiritual analogy. He's using the child in his arms as an illustration for Christians. So you could paraphrase these verses like this. Whoever receives a follower of Jesus receives Jesus. But whoever causes another Christian to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So, follower of Jesus, let's examine how we're doing here. Verse 5 clearly teaches that loving Jesus means loving his people. You see that in verse 5? If you receive one of mine in my name, you're receiving me. It's quite common for people to say, I love Jesus and hate the church. Jesus says that's, that's impossible. If you love me, you will love my people. Years ago, I was a immature youth pastor at a church just outside of Memphis, Tennessee, and a godly man in our church pulled me aside because I was struggling to love some of the kids in, his, in the youth group. And he told me something that I haven't forgotten. It didn't really stick with me then because I wasn't a father at the time, but he told me this. He said, if you want to love me, you'll love my kids. Parents, you know that's true, don't you? 
You feel that, right? If you don't say you love me and mistreat my kids, you want to get a mama mad? You do something to one of her kids, right? Jesus here is saying the same thing. You cannot, God the Father will not tolerate those who mistreat his children. You can say, I love God all that you want, but if you hate his people, you're lying to yourself. Christian, one of the most important ways to examine yourself is to examine your love for the people of God. Listen to the way Jesus puts it in John 13. By, all, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. So let me ask you, Christian, can others see your love for God's people? Can other people see your love for God's people? Maybe you're thinking, well, which, which of God's people am I supposed to love? You know, I mean, I can, you know, do I just need to like Christian posts on Facebook? Give a thumbs up to somebody with a Jesus bumper sticker? High five somebody listening to K-Love? You know, what, what, which Christians am I supposed to love? If you look at Matthew 18, the context for this chapter is life within the local church. In fact, the word church is only mentioned twice in all the Gospels, and the second time is right here in this chapter. So if you want to measure your love for the people of God, measure your love for your local church. So let me ask you again, Christian, can others see your love for God's people in your local church? Are you actively involved in the life of your church family? Are you committed to your church through membership? Do you know the brothers and sisters in your church? Are you trying to get to know the people that you don't know? Are you praying regularly for them? If you love Jesus, you will love his people. Maybe you're thinking, well, how am I supposed to love them? Verses 6 and 7 clearly answer that question. In those verses, Jesus makes it clear that loving Jesus' people means a selfless commitment to their holiness. Do you want to love Jesus' kids? you want to love the kids of God the Father? Care about their holiness. That's what Jesus is saying in verses 6 and 7. In those verses, the opposite of receiving one of God's children in Jesus' name is mistreating them. Specifically, mistreating them, notice, in a way that leads them into sin. So what God wants most for his children is their holiness. And Christian, if you love your church family, you will want what he wants for his kids. Jesus says that God wants his kids to be holy so much that it would be better for you to strap some cement blocks to your neck and jump off the James River Bridge than to do anything that would lead his people into sin. You see the seriousness of what Jesus is saying here? If you love Jesus, you will love his people. And if you love his people, you will want them to be holy. 
After over 15 years in ministry, I have met many, many Christians in many, many churches who struggle mightily with this. They know a lot of information. They know their Bible really well. Often they pride themselves on how well they're doing and following the Bible themselves, but they have little or no interest in helping others follow Jesus. Dear professing Christian, hear me. If you know a lot of theology, but you're not actively committed to helping other people in your church learn theology, you don't know half as much as theology as you think. Dear Christian, professing Christian, if you claim to care a lot about personal holiness, but you don't give a rip about helping other Christians be holy, you're not half as holy as you think you are. If that seems harsh to you, Christian, consider again Jesus' words about the millstone. He cares a lot about this. So how can we commit ourselves to the holiness of God's people? What, what are some practical steps that we can take? Let me suggest three. Three simple practical ways that you can care about the holiness of God's people. And I'm taking off my jacket because it's hot in here. You guys don't fall asleep on me now. It's warm. We got to stick with it. There's more to go. Okay. Number one, you want to be committed to the holiness of God's people? Faithfully and fully show up. Show up. Don't underestimate the importance of showing up to church week after week, not, not as a bump on a log, but actively engaged in the life of the people of God. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Christian, as you faithfully and fully show up and engage with the people of God, you're stirring them up towards holiness. Don't underestimate the value of faithfully showing up and being fully engaged when you're here. Number two, attend members' meetings. Commercial time. I've said often that our members' meetings are the, the second most important church meeting at PBC. These are the meetings where we follow Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18, verse 17, that we'll look at next week. In these meetings, we talk about how we're going to spend our money. We talk about who we're going to welcome into our fellowship. We talk about who's going to lead us and much more. It's hard to overestimate the importance of these once-a-quarter meetings in the life of of PBC. If you're here and you're a member of Pocosin Baptist Church, let me suggest to you it's probably not too late to clear your calendar for 6 p.m. on May the 21st. Commercial over. Here's a third simple way. Do you want to be committed to the holiness of others in your life? Get in a small group. Get in a small group. I, I don't care if it's a fellowship group or a discipleship group or a Bible study or a Sunday school class. Some context where you can be in a smaller group with other Christians and you can talk about what it means to follow Jesus. You're going to have a really, really, really hard time helping other people follow Jesus if the only time you interact with your church family is Sunday morning between 10, 15 and whenever the pastor stops preaching. 
You're going to have a hard time with that. Now, I know there's all sorts of reasons why that might be hard for some of us, but let me plead with you. If you just don't know where to get plugged in, talk to one of the pastors. We want to help you. There's, there's more than just the things in the bulletin. There's ways for you to engage in smaller groups with other believers. You're going to have a hard time pursuing the holiness of other Christians if you're never in a smaller group with one. So, get in a small group. Christian, are you selflessly committed to the holiness of others? If not, confess it to the Lord and say, I'm not really concerned about their holiness the way I should be. I'm sorry, Lord. Forgive me. Trust he's forgiven you and take one or two practical steps to grow in that area. If you are doing well in that area, Christian, keep going, but don't stop there. Because it's not enough to be committed to others' holiness. We must also be committed to our own. Which leads to the second self-examination question. Am I radically committed to my own holiness? Am I radically committed to my own holiness? Look at verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. What is Jesus talking about? If you were with us when we studied the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7, you remember there was a similar passage to this where Jesus was talking about the sin of lust. And he said, pluck out your eye instead of going to hell with both eyes. Now, what does Jesus mean? Are we supposed to interpret this literally? Uh, No. If so, then all of us should be amputees and blind because all of us have committed sin with all of our appendages. Jesus' point is not that you literally do this, but we ought to take this passage seriously. Jesus is is giving us this metaphor, this analogy of how serious you and I should be in our radical pursuit of personal holiness. Be so committed to holiness, Christian, that you'll cut anything out of your life that doesn't please Christ. Are you that committed? Jesus here is not talking about mutilation, but mortification. Mortification is a fancy theological term that simply means putting your sin to death. That's what Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, when he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The Christian life Much of it is this hard, violent work of putting to death your sin. Are you engaged in that battle, Christian? John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Christian, are you this concerned about personal holiness? Perhaps it's easier for you to focus on the holiness of others. 
But like the airline tells you to put on your own oxygen mask before you help the person next to you, you are not going to be much good helping somebody else be holy if you're not pursuing holiness yourself. Are you radically committed to personal holiness? Christian, what radical steps do you need to take to pursue holiness in your life? Who do you need to open up with about your struggle? Is there a relationship that you need to end? Is there a stash that you need to destroy? Is there a device that you need to get rid of? Is there a sin that you need to bring into the light? If you're a follower of Jesus, you must actually follow him. You must pursue holiness because heaven is only for the humble and the holy. Now, before we conclude this morning, I want us to understand how much trouble we're really in apart from Jesus. I I think there are too many people, perhaps even some in this room, that don't appreciate the rescue that Jesus offers because you don't realize how much trouble you're in. If you don't know what real trouble is, you won't appreciate real rescue. Like the hiker in Maine who called the National Guard and asked them to rescue him because he was tired. Or the man who called for a rescue helicopter because he was hiking too slowly and was afraid that he would miss an important business meeting. Listen, Christian, unbeliever, Jesus didn't come to rescue you from a minor inconvenience. Jesus explains in verses 8 and 9 the alternative to heaven. In verse 8, he calls it eternal fire. In verse 9, he calls it the hell of fire. Now, I know some of you in this room are old school Christians, and you grew up on sermons that you might call fire and brimstone sermons, where it seems like the preacher is talking about hell every single week. And some of you might be wondering, why don't we talk about it anymore? We're going to talk about it as we conclude this morning, but let me just say to those of you that wonder, why don't we talk about it more? Our goal is to talk about what the text talks about. I've been in churches where every preacher can turn every text into a sermon about hell. And I've seen churches where the preacher can find a text on hell and somehow not talk about hell at all. Our job is to talk about what the Bible talks about. And now we come upon a passage where Jesus talks clearly about a place called hell. If you're here this morning and you're a guest, this is not our normal thing to end our time with a happy little thought time experiment about hell. Our job is to talk about what the Bible talks about. It might surprise you this morning to learn that Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the entire Bible. Jesus, who is gentle and lowly, meek and mild, merciful and mighty, talks about hell more than anybody else. 
There's a few misconceptions about hell that Jesus will not allow us to believe. Hell is not a party, friend. You're not going to be hanging out with all your cool friends in hell. It's a place of isolation. It's a place of suffering. That's why Jesus uses the metaphor of unquenchable, eternal fire to talk about hell. It's not a party. It's not a good time. It's not a hangout for all the cool kids. It's a place of eternal suffering. Hell is not run by Satan. If you look at any cartoon with a picture of hell, Satan's going to be down there with a pitchfork. He's in control of the place. That's not at all what the Scriptures teach. Jesus clearly says in Matthew 25 that hell is the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Satan is not tormenting people in hell. He's being tormented in hell. It was prepared for him and his demons, but along with him will suffer anyone who will not trust in Christ. Hell is not temporary. Nearly every single time that Jesus mentions hell, he talks about its eternality. In one place, he talks about hell being the place where the, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's an eternal place. Hell is not arbitrary. It's the righteous punishment of a holy God. It's what we deserve. If you're honest, I think some of you would say, that's hard for me to accept. I don't really think my sin's that bad. I mean, am I really bad enough to deserve to be punished for eternity? I think one reason why we have a hard time with that is because we think that once we see Jesus face to face, we'll be sorry for all of our sin and we'll be repentant and we'll be begging him to let us out of hell. But that's not the image the Bible gives us. The image the Bible gives us is that even in hell, you'll shake your fist at God, just as maybe you're shaking your fist at him now. Revelation 16 says, talking about the final judgment, says that they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. As C.S. Lewis says, the damned are in one sense successful rebels to the end. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. You don't want out. I don't say that to scare anybody in this room, but to plead with you to repent and believe before it's too late. Jesus did not come to rescue you from some minor inconvenience. Jesus, on the cross, endured hell in your place. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, for our sake, he, that's God the Father, 
made him, that's God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus willingly endured the wrath of God the Father, what we deserve in hell, so that you and I could be saved. So dear unbeliever, please repent and trust in Jesus. Humble yourself today before it's too late. And to the Christians in this room, the more clearly you understand the trouble that you were saved from, the more humble you become. The more you desire to pursue holiness. The solution for you, Christian, is not to pull yourself up by your bootstraps yet again, but to look yet again to the cross of Christ and to see what he endured there, the horrors that he endured there so that you could be saved. Don't put your hope in your humility, Christian. Don't put your hope in your holiness. Put your hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. And he alone will hold you fast. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift.